Hello, and welcome to the New York Beef Banter Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Rodriguez, registered dietitian nutritionist. The New York Beef Banter Podcast was created by the New York Beef Council as a way to connect consumers with beef industry experts to give you a spot at the fence post to a candid and transparent conversation about beef and what it takes to put it on your plate. So everyone, tell me, are you ready to banter? Today, I could not be more honored to be joined by the one and only Dr. Sarah Place, renowned beef and sustainability researcher, currently with Elanco Animal Health. Welcome. And also joining us today, Zach Welker of SK Hereford. He is a Region 1 Environmental Sustainability Award winner. It's going to be a great conversation. I want to dive right in. Thank you so much for joining me today on this conversation about sustainability. And I just want to kick it off. Is there one hard and fast definition of sustainability? What is yours? I'm going to go to Dr. Place first and then to Zach. Yeah, so it is a uh, term that can have a lot of different meanings, but there's, there's broad agreement basically that it encompasses the environment and social issues and economic issues, right? So basically we could, we could say for sustainability and producing food, it's about producing food with environmental stewardship, social responsibility, and an economic viability, right? So all three of those things in balance. And the other component of sustainability is it's about, you know, meeting the needs of the present, but also not sacrificing the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So it's like that long-term focus and balancing all three of those areas. I'm hearing people, planet, profit. Basically, yes. Right. Yes. Gotta, I gotta hit all three. Zach, you are out there every day doing the work. How do you define sustainability? Yeah, I guess I agree with Dr. Playson and I guess in a more um, everyday kind of way, I guess I always break sustainability down into, a, um, you know, not only is it a environmental sustainability, but to kind of piggyback on your branches of that, it's also kind of a um, you know, in that respect, it's how are we taking care of the land? How are we most effectively feeding our cattle to produce that healthy food source um, in the environmental sense, but also kind of in our business sense? Um, you know, what are we doing to make sure that, you know, I can pass our farm on to my children? Um, you know, how are we being profitable while still being environmentally sustainable? And then I guess it also kind of has an in an industry sustainability component, you know, what are we doing to help the industry as a whole, help the Hereford breed as a whole so that, you know, it kind of all trickles down because if the whole, if the larger picture succeeds, then so do we. So I guess that's kind of the three ways that I look at sustainability on a daily basis. So given that, Zach, I just want to ask, like, what is one thing, whether it's that people profit or planet, what's one thing you really wish the consumer would know about your sustainability efforts? Or what's one myth that comes up really frequently that you'd kind of like to bust? I guess one thing that I just always like to really hit hard on, and I think it, when we do tours on the farm, a lot of people are surprised to hear it. It's not something that they vocalize to us. But when you talk about just the volume and the sheer acres of land that we graze cattle on that nothing else can be done on. 
and what we're doing to feed people while we're also, you know, helping maintain those spaces that nothing else could be used for. And, you know, with other words, just be overgrown, you know, places where nothing could be utilized at all. So that's something that I really like to, to hit home to people that we're really using some of this land that nobody else can use in a way that's, you know, feeding people and connecting us to the consumer. It's funny how we can't just magically turn all that land into broccoli crops, right? right. So we, we, find, right. we find a use. So Dr. Please, when I hear both of you talk about sustainability, I think we're talking in like cycles, right? And life cycles and regenerating things. But cattle have a really unique role in this let's call it like this sustainability cycle and cycles of regeneration. So can you explain a little bit more about how, how cattle work within the environment to play their role in the health of the environment, us, uh, themselves, the soil? Kind of take us through that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I think we could spend a whole lot of time talking about all the different <laughs> ways that cattle yes. interface from that standpoint, right? And, and Zach could definitely provide those, those specific examples, but I think the one way to just really take is, you know, big picture lens is like, well, what are these critters that we call cattle doing, right? They're basically consuming, you know, human inedible grass, mostly, right? Even grain finished beef, most of what they eat is grass. And of course, corn is actually grass. That's always a technicality there. Hold on. Can you say that again? Corn <laughs> is actually grass, corn, everybody. Corn is a grass, right? And of course, <laughs> grain is just the, the seed head of the grass. So uh, yeah, grasses are very important. But <laughs> basically, when we think about what cattle are doing, they're taking that carbon that's captured by these plants, amazingly, you know, via photosynthesis. And they're taking that carbon that we can't access because it's mostly bound up in this molecule we call cellulose, right? most abundant organic compound in the world where most of the solar energy is captured, but we can't digest it, right? Uh, but cattle being ruminants, they have this really neat symbiotic relationship with all the microbes that live in their stomach. And those micro microbes help them actually break it down, right? Break that cellulose down. And so basically what these cattle are doing is unleashing solar energy that we can't access without them. Uh, and while they're doing that, right, they're obviously one, they're producing high quality food, but you know, they're also producing manure and that can help in a lot of cases feed soil, right? Or cycle nutrients, just as you were saying, right? And that's really the, the beauty of what cattle are doing is they are cycling nutrients. They are really important for soil health in a lot of cases. Um, and basically as, as Zach was saying, you know, about that whole idea of land use, right? That's so important too, is especially as we sit here in New York state, there's so much land that you could definitely plow it if you wanted to, mm -hmm. uh, but it's highly erodible. Right. And that's the beauty of cattle is that in a lot of these landscapes, we're able to have a permanent crop, right? Grass, have that soil held together by roots, and yet still produce human food because we have these cattle in those systems and still have cattle with white tailed deer and turkeys mm -hmm. and everything else on the landscape, right? So we have an ecosystem that is wild and functioning, plus we're still producing food, right? So that's just some of the ways where cattle production is so important from that cycle standpoint. So it sounds like not only are we doing these great things for the soil and of course us as consumers, I'm happy because I'm getting a steak at the end of all this, but I'm hearing this component and I feel like it just kind of like gets swept under the rug and no one talks about it, that the way 
be farmers and ranchers care for the environment actually has this protective effect on other species, right? So Zach, I think you have some really special stuff going on um, at, at your farm and it's not for no reason that you got this big award, this environmental sustainability award. So if you can speak to some ways that you utilize the environment around you as in other industries and other farms that might be around you, and what species are specifically being protected through your sustainability practices? Sure. So I guess I'll kind of start kind of in a cycle of our year with some of the things that we do starting in the spring and going through summer and then into, you know, when our cattle can't graze as much. Um, I guess as far as starting the year, um, bordering around the permanent perimeter of um, our main farm and all the pastures we have, uh, bluebird birdhouses, uh, bird boxes on, you know, every so many uh, wooden poles where we can, you know, allow them to have a safe place and hatch out every spring. Um, we have a section of um, about three and a half acres of milkweed that we let um, go to seed every, uh, every year at the beginning that the, uh, you know, the monarchs and the pollinators can use that we kind of, you know, we just will let it go um, until, it's done, the cows or the, you know, pollinators are done with it and then we'll let the cows out on it afterwards. Um, getting into, you know, our grazing season, which can kind of fluctuate depending on what the spring weather is like. Sometimes we can get cows out on pastures in April. Sometimes we're waiting till the middle of May. Um, we pretty intensely rotationally graze. So talking um, to Dr. Place's comments about, um, keeping up the nutrient levels in our pasture lands. Um, you know, basically we're taking, say for instance, a 10 acre field and we're putting a temporary wire, um, you know, through the first section of that field uh, to let the cows for, I usually try to do it for, for a day to let them really clean that off, not overgraze it, but really not be able to pick through things and clean everything off. Um, and then the next day, we're moving that temporary wire, but I'm also putting one behind them so that they can't get on what they've already grazed. And then the regrowth process for that can start with the idea, you know, for 35 to 40 days, that group of cows is back where they started for another grazing. Um, you know, so we're utilizing all the forages that are in there. We're keeping, you know, that regrowth healthy, which in turn is, you know, making a more nutrient dense forage for our cattle. They're producing more milk for the calves that they're feeding. The calves are growing better. The cows are sustaining better, um, you know, and they're in more of a confined um, strip each day where they're allowing to, you know, compact that soil a little bit more to get a little bit, um, to have a concentrated area where their manure is going to kind of put nutrients back into the ground. So that's kind of our, you know, our grazing season, which ideally will go from April to November. Sometimes it goes from May to October, you know, we never know, but that's the, that's our practice. You know, I pretty intensely rotationally graze. Um, you know, this year I had one, one pasture that we got seven grazings off of and probably could have gotten another one off of you know, had the weather allowed for us to, and it wouldn't have turned it into a mud hole if we had put the cows back out on it. Um, but, you know, get through the grazing season. And we also uh, have a neighboring farm who um, they're vegetable farmers and we take their cabbage byproduct um, 
every year when they're getting ready to send it off to stores, we get their refusals. So, um, you know, right now we're getting a 10 wheeler dump truck load a day of cabbage that we're, you know, we're upcycling with our cattle, we're reusing it. Um, you know, and it really not only gives it, we don't, don't only capture the nutrients from that, but it's also stretching out our forages, um, you know, that we've made in, in the growing season to feed for the winter. So it's, it's, um, you know, working together with, with everybody. And that's another kind of people aspect where not only are we working it together with the consumers and the public, we're working together with other people, you know, in the agriculture industry as well. I, I love hearing that because in Dr. Place, I think this is a stat I initially got from you somewhere down the line. It's um, that fruits and vegetables, I think both on the farm level and the consumer level are the most wasted crop. Is that right? Yeah, they tend to be right. And it, and it makes sense, right? When you think about grocery stores and everything else, we like to see nicely displayed fresh fruits <laughs> and vegetables. And then of course they go bad, right? So right. it is a, a higher percent waste as compared to a lot of, uh, for example, meat that tends to be wasted a lot less. Yeah. So it, it sounds like I'm hearing two different things. Like one, you're working in this greater ecosystem of Western New York, right? So mm. you're helping out the farmer, the farmer is helping you out, less food, um, less food is being wasted. I'm picking up on a little bit of a theme, like plants need animals, animals need plants. Is that, Absolutely. Is that pretty fair Very to say? Fair, and fair. yeah, and Dr. Place, if you could maybe talk about how some of that plays out in terms of, you know, like, how does our carbon footprint add up? Like between us as I'm, I'm an out and proud meat eater, I'm an omnivore. What would be the difference? Like if I just stopped eating meat, but I stopped eating, uh, but I didn't stop eating anything else. I didn't stop eating my fruits and vegetables, obviously. Like what's the, what's the real impact if we were to play around with some of those numbers? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something that people see a lot. We see a lot of headlines about like dietary change, basically to try to mm -hmm. reduce our carbon footprint. Um, the The reality is, is that one person's going to have basically, I mean, that's always kind of discouraging thing to say, but basically no impact, right? If you change your diet and really why that is, is because of some of these interconnections in the whole system, right? Um, so it's, it's this back and forth between, we have a lot of so-called byproducts or, you know, would-be waste uh, that goes to livestock production. And the other thing that livestock gives back to crop agriculture is manure, basically. And that's a way for us to cycle nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus. And when we do that, that means we don't have to use as much synthetic fertilizer, right? Um, so there was a study that came out a few years ago in the proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences and really tried to look at this whole question of dietary change and looked at it in the most extreme way, which is basically saying, what if we truly like eliminated all farm animals in the U.S.? Which is not going to happen, right? But it's just almost putting an upper cap on what is possible. Mm -hmm. um, and that study really found, you know, you would reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but only by 2.6 percentage points. And that's with the animals being completely gone. Yes, which okay, is the part that is not going to happen, right? Right. Most likely. <laughs> Thank so, goodness. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, or if we did, you know, we would probably replace uh, domestic ruminants with wild ruminants like bison, right? And then you're, you're increasing, uh, well, basically you're eating into your benefit, if you will, from that standpoint. Right. Yeah. 
Um, so it's not to discourage people and obviously dietary choices are up to, to individual folks, but there's not a lot of impact from that standpoint. It's more about whether plant or animal agriculture, how do we help make that system better, yeah. regardless of what's on your plate, right? So it has a lower impact when it gets to you. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I love hearing these stories about literally, like literally your, <laughs> your herds are grazing on cucumbers and cabbage, which mm-hmm. is so cool. But I've had the opportunity to visit parts of Pennsylvania, which is, and, and like the snack capital of the world. And at the, you know, at the feedlot level, some of these cattle are getting like toaster pastries and mm-hmm. potato chips chocolate, and like right? chocolate and yeah. like, it mm-hmm. smells really good. Yeah. And like all of these little wasted things that probably no one thinks about, which is which is super cool. So it sounds like not only, so if we just, if we removed all of the cattle and no one ate any meat, it would be this reduction of, I'm sorry, what, 2.6? Yes. Right, so really tiny. And, but can you talk about what would be some of the other drawbacks that yeah. come along with this very relatively small yeah. reduction in our carbon footprint, so to yeah. speak? So the, the key thing there would be, of course, that, that standpoint of we'd have to use more synthetic fertilizer, right? Like right. I mentioned, um, just because we're, we're not having that nutrient cycling ability that we get with livestock. Um, on the other side of the equation, though, you know, from a nutritional standpoint, of course, we think about our food supply, the only source of, say, vitamin B12 in our foods, uh, not thinking about supplements, but truly our foods, is animal source foods, Right. Um, so if we have that situation, we would actually produce more calories. We probably don't need more calories in America. I'm, I'm going to agree with you on that. We don't, we don't need more calories. Yeah. <laughs> but we would basically have a, like a less nutrient dense food supply, if that makes sense. And that's, that's always, I think sometimes it, um, it's a nuance that gets lost is like, absolutely. When you feed plants to animals and then eat the, the product, whether it's a dairy product or meat or eggs. Uh, you do lose energy from plants. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But that's the whole point is right. that they're using the energy to make a more nutrient dense product. So that's always the trade-off. And I think there's a, since we're talking about protein and I think something no one really wants to talk about is like, depending if you're looking at say like the AMDR, the acceptable macronutrient distribution range, which is what as a dietitian for active people, I mostly go by. So like, how would we make up that protein content one? So there would, there would be maybe a deficiency there, definitely the vitamin deficiencies. But if you wanted to bring someone up to that protein level, like what are we growing? How invasive are those species um, potentially? And do we even have the land? So I think there's a lot that people don't really think about as part of the whole equation there. Um, and I think it is really important to point out that if you're looking at, say, oh, I'm not going to eat meat on such a day of the week, then that impact is really, really, really tiny as a, as an individual. So thank you for that. I think those numbers are really important. Um, Talking about all of the ways that plants and animals interact, there's another word that's really out there a lot, regenerative agriculture. So it seems like the word sustainability, I love this like really hard and fast definition with the three pillars, that's super helpful. But unfortunately the term sustainability has been co-opted by different people. It's really used as like a food labeling buzzword in a lot of ways. So another one coming out now is regenerative, right? So how do we look at this? And Zach, I'll start with you. In what ways do you feel like as a 
BQA certified operation, what are you already doing that's quote unquote regenerative? Well, I guess if you just kind of take it, take that word regenerative, you know, on its face, you know, we're, we're doing that rotational grazing where we are, um, you know, where we're putting, we're putting cows on that pasture and we're uh, grazing it. And then we're coming back through after that, you know, forage has regenerated and we're feeding it again, um, you know, and also, I guess, cows aren't something that necessarily go away so you know that cow is you know when her calf this year goes into the feedlot or our my replacement pen or wherever it goes she's also regenerating another calf the next year so I mean I guess um, you know there's probably more um, there's probably more of a professional industrial um, definition for that but I think that as it applies to us on the farm you know that's kind of a way that um, we're doing things regeneratively if you will um, from our perspective. So it sounds like it's built into that sustainability term and in a lot of yeah, ways. Absolutely. Dr. Place how do you feel about this term regenerative agriculture? Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of those terms that actually there is uh, there is not one set definition for the word regenerative right. Um, so that is one of the challenges always. And, and, you know, we can use different terms and I've heard some people say, well, I don't want to use sustainability because I don't want to just sustain what I'm doing. I want to make it better. Right. And mm. that's where a lot of folks uh, gravitate towards that word of regenerative is improving the resource base that you're working with, not just sustaining it. Um, so sometimes I think those things have merit. Sometimes it's semantics, if that makes sense. Like yeah. at the end of the day, we kind of have to focus on the outcomes that we can make better. Um, and a lot of times regenerative focuses on the principles of soil health, which are really, again, a lot of the things that Zach mm -hmm. has talked about that he's doing of, you know, how can we, um, you know, we're always going to have to have inputs into the system, but how do we minimize those inputs as much as possible and really uh, take advantage of the soil biology as much as we can. Well, and I think to your point of um, something that can be improved, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of what you're doing with the um, you know, how we graze, how we care for the soil, the crops, the forages, the land, and, you know, also, also genetically with the cattle, you know, we're constantly trying to, you know, make the genetics, make our genetic base better, make our herd better, um, you know, both phenotypically, genotypically, there's so much that we can, you know, that we can gauge and that we can do in, you know, mating cattle and that kind of thing, which, you know, the the registered cattle business and, you know, marketing genetics is really, you know, kind of a passion of mine. So I always look at it from a standpoint of that too. Um, you know, I guess to kind of, to kind of circle that back around to kind of everything we've talked about so far, it's always something that I bring up on tours that we do at the farm and this kind of thing that, you know, people don't understand that, you know, how much time per all farmers and ranchers, but particularly registered breeders who are, you know, trying to trying to do that, pay attention to the genetics of of their herd and trying to improve it. And you know, sustainability and everything that we've talked about is linked to that. You know, both phenotypically and genotypically as well, because genotypically we can, you know, we can we can determine feed efficiency in the Hereford breed, um, you know, and dry matter intake and things like that. Um, you know, and phenotypically, we're always striving for, 
you know, that cow that's got the right set to her leg, that cow that can travel well to all of the places where we need to get her to graze, to, you know, produce milk and sustain herself, grow her calf, that kind of thing, you know, and right down to, you know, the udder and the teat traits of our cows, because when you're talking about sustainability and the environment as a whole and efficiency, you know, to be more on the farm breeder term, you know, we have to have a cow that has the right size udder and the right size teat because when these cows are out in the field having calves in the spring, you know, they need to, they need to be structurally sound in their udder and their teat so that that calf can nurse, can, you know, get its first uh, drink of colostrum and because that kind of sets the whole tone for everything because if we have a calf that can't get going because of the structure of its mother, then we're putting stress on that calf. It's getting sick. And what are we doing down the road? We're having to feed it more and use more different types of, um, you know, methods on that to get it to the same place that a calf that gets that healthy start from a good cow would surpass it quicker. So that's, you know, something that not a lot of people think about, but it's something that I always like to engage the public on that there is more that goes into it than just us looking at our cows out on a pasture every day you know <laughs> so I, obviously i think as a whole the industry has leveraged a lot of developments and advances in science over the past say 60 years and we know that between like the 60s and 2019 there's been this reduction in emissions per pound of beef produced something like 40%, but we're also producing 67% more beef per animal, right? So it sounds like we're producing larger yet leaner animals. Is that fair to say? Or in some cases that's, that's what's driving it. Um, okay. And then other parts of it is kind of what, what Zach had mentioned, um, you know, this kind of gets in the weeds of it, but just like reproduction of beef cows mm -hmm. makes a big difference. So sure. the idea of like, how many mama cows do you need out on the landscape to produce a given amount of beef in the country? Um, and so all those animal husbandry items that that Zach outlined um, are incredibly important there. So I think that's the beauty of it is a lot of times there's these synergies of, you know, the, the better that we treat animals, the better they are in terms of health mm -hmm. and their welfare. The better they treat us. Exactly. Mm. So sometimes I think folks have that kind of flipped in their mind. They assume if, if we produce more or get more efficient, that must be degrading animal health or welfare, but it's actually the opposite, yeah. right? I think there's a lot of confusion surrounding the sustainability piece and how it gets kind of entangled with animal welfare. But really what I'm hearing from you both, it's a combination of leveraging genetics in a couple of different ways, husbandry, I'm sure. But then what other, what other actual animal welfare kind of high points do you think factor in? Like is are antibiotics a factor or just general veterinarian care? Like, has that changed a lot since the sixties? Has that changed a little? Has, has feeding changed a lot or a little? So what are, what is everything that you all have done since the sixties that's led to these numbers of producing more beef while reducing your impact? I guess, and I, I guess I don't <laughs> like to talk in terms of antibiotics just because it is such a hot button issue, I guess. And you know, you like to be clear that they're on a prescription basis that, you know, we don't just, you know, wield them blanket, blanket like to every animal. But yeah. um, I guess to answer your question, I think that um, 
you know, kind of in the um, kind of in the collaborative sense, people like Dr. Place, who are resources to um, us on the farm, kind of getting us, pushing us to do things more efficiently, to you know, provide us with these numbers and this data that is going to show us that you know, not only is it going to be better for our cattle, for the environment, it's also going to affect our bottom line. You know, I think that the collaboration um, you know, between the times that you're talking has gotten a lot better. We know a lot more, we're able to research a lot more. And I think that um, on the farm production side of things, I think there's been so many advancements and there's been just so much more education on um, what we need to vaccinate cattle with. You know, we need to start right right in that first 24 hours, getting them vaccinated for certain respiratory diseases, for certain, you know, um, for certain bacterias, um, you know, things that can really set a calf back from the very beginning that's going to um, affect how, you know, in one sense, sustainable and efficient we are in producing that steak that gets to your plate. Um, you know, it's going to affect that, but that's also going to affect our bottom line because that's where you do get into the antibiotics and you do get into this animal needs to be on feed longer, which is going to, you know, cut into our profit because we have to keep it longer to finish it. Um, you know, so I think that, um, you know, BQA related things, um, check off funded education um, that are, were step one made available and step two um done in a way that people were interested in learning about it and and there were actually people who would teach about it so i think that those are you know very expanded to things that have really impacted the way that we do things and the way that the public sees us i guess if they want to listen so it's like the industry's investment in the industry is is also playing a role as well mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i think uh for sure it's um it's that kind of story across American agriculture in general, right, of those type of uh, relationships with adopting the latest science. And I would say the only other thing that, that hasn't necessarily been mentioned is just the advancements in animal nutrition, right, which are huge as well, right. right? There's been a tremendous amount of research and better understanding what these animals' nutrient requirements are. So it's kind of to simplify it down, it's one, improving the genetic merit of these animals that they, you know, if we give them the right environment, they can really thrive. And then doing mm -hmm. all the things that we do to create the best environment for them, providing the best nutrition, providing uh, a lower stress environment, right? A, an environment where they can be healthy, right? All those things together. Dr. Place, I know that this is the, the bulk of your work and I've, I've followed you so closely and you could, again, talk hours about this. Say you're, you're stuck in an elevator with someone, you have like, 60 seconds you, you get and you get right this is, this is raising my blood pressure thinking about it right but but you have like that 60 seconds and someone comes at you about beef's impact on the environment when you boil it right down what's kind of your blanket like elevator speech answer yeah i think the key thing is coming back to that idea of the cycle right of like the beauty of what ruminants do is they take plants and they take solar energy that we can't use and they make a higher quality product for us to consume right and so whether you eat beef or not you really need cattle in the food system because of all these other things that they do right everything from all these nutrient cycling aspects to making sure that we have open space and landscapes where we have good wildlife habitat especially for grassland species 
um, and all the other things that come from cattle that you may not think about, right? Everything from heart valves to people, for right. people, um, to, to uh, obviously leather and other, other pharmaceuticals, right? So all that is what is encapsulated in the, the thing that is cattle, right? And, and, and the cool way that they intersect with all the different aspects of your life that you might not think about. Yes. I love it. Yes. I want to say thank you both so much for having this candid and sometimes tough conversation about sustainability in the beef industry. Everyone, if you enjoyed what you heard here today, I hope you'll turn into the next episode of Beef Banter. This podcast is funded by the Beef Checkoff. The Beef Checkoff Program was established as part of the 1985 Farm Bill. The Beef Checkoff assesses $1 per head on the sale of live, domestic, and imported cattle, in addition to a comparable assessment on imported beef and beef products. States retain up to 50 cents on the dollar and forward the other 50 cents per head to the Cattlemen's Beef Promotion and Research Board, which administers the National Beef Checkoff Program subject to USDA approval. Consumer-focused and producer-directed, CBB and its state Beef Council partners are the marketing organization for the largest segment of the food and fiber industry.